Husband. Yes, that is the name of this show, and it is also who I am as the proud and indeed blessed spouse of Rabbi Erica Gerson. One of the many benefits of being a rabbi's husband is living in an environment full of love of the Torah, um, and specifically love of the Torah as it was intended, as a guidebook to help us live happier, better, and more meaningful lives in the most practical and always actionable ways. So that's the purpose of the show, to discuss with the most interesting people from a diversity of backgrounds, their favorite biblical passage with regard to how it inspires, instructs, enlightens, or directs them in the most practical way. Today, I am delighted to welcome Pano Canellas, who is the president of St. John's of Annapolis. Now, in addition to being a renowned academic leader, President Canellos is a Shakespearean scholar. He holds a PhD from the Committee of Social Thought at the University of Chicago, an MA in political philosophy and literature from BU, and a BA from Northwestern University. And I've been saying since I was in college myself, I, I, I remember when I had this realization, I was, um, I remember where I was standing in, in Williams College when I was a sophomore, and I remember thinking, because I just met somebody from there, I said, the best college for America is St. John's. If I could do it again, I would go to St. John's and study the great books. And I've been thinking that ever since. Consequently, what an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to have the president of that college, President Canellas, here on The Rabbi's Husband. Pano, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, I just thank you so much for inviting me to have a conversation. I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to uh, St. John's and what St. John's stands for. And and I just remember being so impressed by these young people I met at, from St. John's when I was young, 25 years ago, and how intellectually serious they were, how rigorous their learning was. Well, I, I'll say very little about myself other than I'm, I'm probably the least appropriate person to be president of this college in that, um, you know, my background was not one that would set me up for this kind of position. I, I grew up in the back of a Greek diner. My family are, huh. are Greek. Um, I'm a first-generation Greek-American, and uh, nobody in my family had ever been to college, both my immediate family or my extended family. But I spent a lot of time in the back of the restaurant before and after school. Where was the restaurant? What state? Our first restaurants were in Chicago. Okay. Later on, our family migrated to Arizona. But, you know, when you're when you're a kid and, you know, uh, this was before you can get on devices of all sorts. So I occupied myself with the original handheld device. It was called the printed book. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent a lot of time reading and, uh, you know, sort of became a, a lover of books. And um, through my own academic journey, I came to the institution that is probably where books are most lovingly encountered, St. John's College. And just to kind of briefly describe the college to those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a great books college. We have no majors. All of our students mm -hmm. study the great books, mostly of the Western tradition, from the classical world to the modern world. And it's uh, interdisciplinary. We read original text in philosophy, literature, science, mathematics, the arts, completely discussion-based at every stage. So our students have this kind of common intellectual journey and reading the same text, discussing the same text together as a kind of cohort moving through four years. And what's extraordinary is our faculty have that same journey. So our faculty, no matter what their background is, what their PhD is in, whether it's you know biochemistry or the classics or music theory, they have to teach across the entire curriculum, which means they teach everything from ancient Greek to physics to uh, French poetry. So every professor can teach every subject? Yeah. Amazing. How can they do that? Well, it, it depends on how you define teaching. So uh, we actually don't call our faculty professors because professors are those who profess some sort of expertise. Uh, we call mm -hmm. our faculty tutors. 
tutors. And uh, tutor is rooted in the word for guardian. They're sort of guardians of a kind of um, way of being together, a tradition of reading. And, you know, the, the job of our tutors is to convene the classroom, ask a kind of opening question to incite discussion, and then be a participant, be a fellow traveler with the students in the discussion of text. So sometimes that is that could even include, quote-unquote, teaching a language like Greek and sort of learning it coterminously with the students themselves and being kind of seekers together. And uh, it's, it's quite powerful. Incredible. What a beautiful uh, way of learning and speaks to the greatness of your institution. Now, it's so interesting that you um, grew up in Greek diners. I grew up in uh, New Jersey and loved diners and still do love diners. And one of the things that I've always wondered about them, which I suppose you can answer is, how can there be so many things on the menu, all of them good? <laughs> the great mystery, like the 20-page diner menu. It is, it's a mystery behind the scenes as well. I mean, essentially, okay, the, the, in, the, the, the secret sauce is that if you look at the menu and you carefully think about what it is that you can order, there are about 10 or 12 different elements that are recombined in lots of different ways. Eggs, cheese, a couple times of types of meat, a few different types of bread. But it's, you know, you can riff quite a bit off those kind of fundamental ingredients. Um, but it comes out of the sense of Greek hospitality, right? Greek hospitality is about overabundance, right? The table has to be full. Everybody has to have everything they want. Um, you know, wow. you, you feel honor bound to, to make sure that everybody's pleased. You know, whatever you whatever you're in the mood for, just keep flipping the page and you're going to find it could be a Reuben sandwich. It could be waffles. You know, it could be fried calamari, whatever it is, it's going to be in there. Wow. And uh, and so it's all based intellectually and, and spiritually, really, on this concept of Greek hospitality. And operationally, it's the same manageable number of items just combined in different ways. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so now let's get into your uh, chosen text, which is Proverbs 27, 1 through 8. Tell us about uh, Proverbs 27, 1 through 8, and why is it so meaningful to you? I'm, I'm glad you identified it as my chosen text and not my favorite. Uh, it's not a favorite of mine, to be honest. You know, it is something that recently piqued my curiosity. You know, I'm a, I'm a close reader, somebody who takes careful time with text, both in reading and discussion. And so oftentimes you find yourself kind of laser focused on passages or lines or word that seems kind of to kind of glow with meaning, but that meaning isn't evident at first, and you just want to keep going back to it. Uh, and so, in this you know, in this sort of block of proverbs, um, you know, there's was sort of one particular set of lines, one proverb that seemed kind of rich with signification, but. I'm not exactly sure I understand it entirely. Um, and so that was part of my motivation for bringing it up, lifting it up for our conversation today. And it's the, the seventh lines, the seventh uh, proverb in the, in, mm. in the chapter. And it uh, reads in the, in the version I have, which is the New King James Version. It translates it as a satiated soul mocks honeycombs, but to a hungry soul, even bitter things appear sweet. So I, I remember reading that. It was kind of a showstopper. I'm like, wait, what is that? What the heck does that mean? I mean, what? It's such an arresting image. Like, what is a satiated soul? Right. How can a soul be satiated? What's, and then and then you start asking other people, well, what is a hungry soul? You know, and then, and then you start asking questions like, well, then what is sweetness to the soul? So I just started wrestling with this particular um, passage and have been thinking about it and, and returning to it recently and trying to put it in the context of, of um, the Proverbs that surround it, that kind of frame it 
to think through it. And um, so that's what I was eager to talk about with you today. It's such a beautiful uh, line in this magnificent proverb, and it's so laden with meaning. So uh, what does it mean to you? The first thing that I, I noticed, because, you know, um, I'm always wary of just sort of uh, sticking with a single translation. And so I, I took a look at a few other translations. And one of the things that I noticed in, in some of them, like the new international version and the new revised standard version, the English versions, was that they, they didn't use the word soul. They, they focused on the appetite. So uh, new international version was something like one who is full, loathes, honey, uh, and the new revised standard was like the sated appetite spurns honey. But there was no mention of the soul in these. And I thought, mm. okay, hang on a minute. Is the soul in this passage or is it not? Because it's a different thing to talk about appetite versus the soul's appetites. So I tried to refer as best I could back to the Hebrew in the, in the word uh, nefesh. I think, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, nefesh. Sure. Which is the life force, the soul. The, it's there in the original. So I'm going to hang on to that as kind of reading this, as being a passage that does direct us towards thinking not just about appetite, but the appetite relative to the soul. And I rewound to the beginning of this uh, set of Proverbs, the beginning of chapter 27. I was like, okay, what's the pattern here? Like, what's the mosaic? I'd love your feedback because I don't know that I have this right, but I'll, I'll give you my run-through up to the passage. You know, the first couple lines, uh, you know, which essentially say, do not boast about tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen. You shouldn't praise yourself. Let your friends do it. Seem to me to be referring to a sort of sense of pride that we have a kind of ego or what the Greeks might have called thumos, right? That sense of one's own self-importance, self-worth, a kind of spiritedness. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become a bad thing. It can be overgrown. And in the next couple passages, you see the next couple lines, you see that spirit becoming overgrown. They, uh, the next few lines talk about the wrath of a man without discernment is heavier than a stone or sand. Wrath is merciless and anger passionate, but jealousy supports nothing. And so what's the connection between that sense of pride and this wrath and this anger and this jealousy? And it, it, it seems to me that we want that which we do not have because we have a sense of um, entitlement. So we sort of want this entitlement. We don't have it. That's where jealousy comes into play. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of this turn where in the next two sets of Proverbs, it starts to talk about um, the necessity of hearing criticism. Th those who love us keep us, they basically keep us in place. It talks about how the wounds of a friend are more trustworthy than the voluntary kisses of an enemy or open brief proofs are better than hidden, hidden love. So what real love is, love that's going to speak the truth to you about yourself. It's not about affirmation or approbation, but about a program, about criticism. And the Bible, it says, it says, uh, rebuke, rebuke your fellow as a commandment. And it's, it says rebuke twice, which leads to interesting questions of interpretation. One is that you're commanded to rebuke your fellow, but the first rebuke is to yourself. So first you say, I want to rebuke myself. And then once I've done that, I'm now qualified and able to rebuke my fellow. But in either case, it's a, a great relationship needs rebuke. Absolutely. And and, uh, and it all begins with a sense of the self, of our, our willingness to start at a place of humility, um, or at least to try to approach humility. And so I sort of putting, you know, that, that sequence of things together, it seems to imply to me that love or a certain form of relationship or love between people is that which helps us right-size our sense of self, right? So rather than letting the ego or mm. pride kind of grow and it's kind of this monstrosity which then becomes hungry and wrathful and jealous, if we listen to those who love us, it, we, you know, we, we feel a kind of contraction of our ego. And that's where I sort of, that's helped me get a little purchase into this, all this stuff about honeycombs and sweetness. You know, I was sort of thinking, okay, is it that the soul can be satiated? when the soul is right-sized. 
So it's not about what goes into the soul, you know, superfluity of sweetness. It's that if your soul is right-sized, your sense of self is is small, you understand who you are in the universe and in the world and relative to the divine, that it doesn't take very much to fill that soul with sweetness. And I, I, and I think about that. I think about, you know, what is it when we really feel our soul being satiated and feel, feel that deeply? It's those quiet moments. You're at the dinner table with your family and your, your kids are there and you're having a conversation and, and the light's kind of striking everybody and the food's nice. And, or you're by a fire with a book. The small things, to me, that's when the soul feels filled with honey. Very interesting, because I had a slightly different interpretation of this. Now, the premise of biblical interpretation is there are 70 faces to the Torah. There are 70 ways, multiple ways, multiple true ways to interpret every verse. Every verse teaches us in multiple ways. But the translation I have here is one who is full or satiated loathes honey. Now, the late great president of Israel, Shimon Peres, was asked, what is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity. He had a lot to choose from. He could have chosen something technological or something medical or something military or something humanitarian or something intellectual. He said the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity is dissatisfaction. He said, teaching us that the that the proper disposition really for all times is to always be dissatisfied. Because when we're dissatisfied, we want to improve something, whether it's about ourselves or about the world. So we should always be dissatisfied. And when you pointed this out, I said, this is it. You know, because if you're if you're full, in other words, if you're satisfied, you will loathe even honey. You know, you will become so totally deformed that even something that is so the quintessentially tasty item, you're going to loathe it because the proper state of man is not satisfaction. It is dissatisfaction, where on the contrast, if you're hungry, in other words, if you're dissatisfied, then you can experience sweetness. That's so interesting. I I mean, I think I agree with that. I, I guess part of it is I think it's hard to go through life and not feel at some point a sense of your soul feeling some sort of rest or satiation. But it's not where we stay for long. So I do think there are those moments in life where life is sweet and things seem right and we encounter them, but they're transitory and fragile. You know, in the the second part of this passage, in my in in my translation, and it implies an appetite a little bit out of control. To a hungry soul, even bitter things appear sweet. Um, but the right. things are bitter. There's something wrong about them. And so if the soul is hunger, too hungry, is it that we were taking pleasure in things that we ought not? to take pleasure in. Interesting. And I and I think about I guess maybe what I had in the back of my mind and this might inflect my reading of the of the total passage. You know, I've been thinking a lot about lately about how people can be so cruel to each other uh, in our civil discourse and in our common life. There's so right. much ambient cruelty. Yet there seems it seems to be perpetuated cuz people take some kind of satisfaction out of it. Some kind of satisfaction about writing that awful thing, you know, in the comment section of a discussion or on Twitter or about that. There's something satisfying to me and that was that kind of sweetness for something that ought to be perceived of as bitter seemed to me to indicate a, a soul that was ravenous or too hungry. So the question is what is the role of satisfaction? And you're absolutely right that it can be a momentary, beautiful experience, but as soon as it gets to be more than momentary, it gets to be dangerous. And I think the biblical proof of this is Jacob had lived a very difficult life, and then it says, and Jacob settled, and then his life was about to get worse. And and he's criticized by the rabbis, and this is a very Jewish thing, that we take our great patriarch and we criticize him, that everyone is subject to criticism, but we criticize him for settling. The rabbis, all the sages, the ancients say, many rewards do the righteous, settling is not one of them. 
And so Jacobs gets criticized for settling. And uh, when, when you settle, you're satisfied, you're not hungry. Because how often do we, after going through such challenges or difficulties, do people finally feel they've reached a state of satisfaction or settlement and then something else happens and they're no longer settled? And in comes a biblical tradition and said, that's okay. That's the way That's the way it should be. Like, there's really no such thing for, of, of settling for the righteous. So I, that, I think that's empirically true, Mark. I mean, I, I don't know that there's, there's anybody who's ever achieved a sense of absolute satiation and, and and feeling like that's it. You know, I have what I need and I'm done. And if they do, that is dangerous. I think it's absolutely dangerous. So interesting. I, I, I think I'm bringing in some sense also my own perspective here as a as a, an Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christian, and thinking about the ends of, of life. In in the Orthodox tradition, we often say that the the purpose of the existence of, of human beings is to achieve theosis, to achieve a mm-hmm. kind of um, a kind of godlike state. I mean, that sounds a little more grander than it is. But, you know, if God is love, how do we achieve the love that God has, that sort of thing? So theosis is kind of this perpetual journey. I think it was um, St. Athanasios who said in the in the figure of Christ that God became man so that man might become God. And so there, there's a sense of a perpetual journey towards something that's really ineffable and something we can never really achieve. But in order to keep us going, we have to have little tastes of paradise along the way. And and that keeps us going towards that goal. And, and I, maybe that's what I'm reading in this passage. Beautiful. And Jacob learned it such the hard way that perhaps it was such the hard way to really teach us that satisfaction is not for this world, that settlement is not for this world. And you're exactly right. It can be little, it can be momentary, and that's great and enjoy it, but then be prepared to move on because move on you will, whether you want to or you don't. Yeah. And I think that that is sort of embedded in in these in the passage we're looking at here, you know, thinking about a, a sated appetite, a satiated soul with honey, there is a point where honey does become too sweet, right? Like, you know, there, there is there is that there's that threshold somewhere where, you know, even something that's highly enjoyable or something highly satisfying that feels fulfilling and complete, at some point you do, you do just need to keep move on and it loses whatever pleasure it's bringing. Well, that's right. And and in, in the uh, Exodus text, when we kept getting the manna day after day, the ultimate food day after day with no work of our own, it literally just rained from the heavens. The text says uh, the people, we craved a craving, which is an odd locution, but that's precise. What did we crave? We craved a craving. We craved to do something. And we, and we were not happy. We were terribly dissatisfied. We were, in fact, acting up when we were given everything that we needed and wanted because we craved a craving. I think that's, that's right. And I think one of the things that is agitating contemporary life, our culture, is um, we're a culture that craves, right? We're a culture of appetite, but we are losing a sense of how to rightly direct those appetites, where to, where to, what to aim for, you know, what, is, what, what should the goals be? And so, you know, a culture of unbridled appetite is, that's a, that in the same way that an individual with a, you know, can turn to wrath and anger and jealousy with an unbridled appetite, so can a culture. And I, and I fear sometimes that that's where we are. That's the existential question in the Joseph story. Uh, what do you seek? When the, the man slash angel sees Joseph in the field, what do you seek? Yeah. Well, Pato, what a fascinating conversation about, and I'm so glad you brought up this proverb, which I'd never looked at before, the Proverbs 27, one through eight, and w- what wisdom you have that you've shared with us. Now, the um, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He tells the story, he said, I, I served with this man uh, in the war, and he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind. And the priest said, one 
everyone is much less happy than he seems, and two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years of engaging with the great ideas, with the canonical books, and with such curious and enterprising students, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Oh, wow. Two things. One would be that human beings are engineered to be seekers of meaning, that, that we are propelled towards seeking meaning, and that, you know, so much of what we aim for in life is sort of finding answers to questions that are posed to us. I mean, and part of becoming a mature human being is realizing that we're never going to quite find those answers, but we can't stop asking the questions. And I'll get point to Shakespeare for a moment um, hmm. to, to help us think about that. Oftentimes when Shakespearean characters make definitive statements, they're undercut with a sort of some, some sort of irony that, that we understand that they don't. And usually this is the kind of basis of tragedy, this kind of ironic misunderstanding. And so, you know, you'll recall that in the Scottish play, right, Macbeth, Macbeth in his kind of moment of high despair, you know, says life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This is a statement. Like this is, this is what he's learned out of life, that it's just a story. There's no meaning whatsoever. But even as he says that, his words are clearly signifying something, right? The, the, his, the very statement can't negate the fact that it is, it's reaching towards some kind of truth. And I think what, what we see there as, as the audience, as the witness to, to Macbeth's sort of despair in this moment, is the tension. There's kind of a paradox, the tension between our inability to discern meaning and our compulsion to be meaning seekers. And so we can't just end at nothing. As Lear says in another context, nothing will come of nothing. Right? And so what are we always trying to do? We're always trying to push back against the void, push back against the zero, push back against nihilism, even if sometimes we fear that that's all there is. So there's this kind of dialectic, I think, between asking questions seeking the answers, filling in the answers, and then realizing we have to go back and start over again. Do, do you see that developing in students? Do you see a transition from freshman year to senior year along those lines? Undoubtedly. How do you see it? So the, every one of our classes, no matter what the subject is, mathematics, philosophy, that begins with an opening question. Um, you know, so for example, we might have read Machiavelli's The Prince one day, and, and the opening question might be posed something like, you know, well, in the Prince, Machiavelli proposes that, you know, the ends justify the means. Uh, is that true? And then that just sort of launches us into a conversation. And early on in this, in the, the career of students here in the freshman year, they're, everybody is sort of competing for the answers. It's like, well, I think it's this. And somebody says, I think it's that. And, and you can see this kind of struggle to, um, to be the one in the room that gets it right by the senior year by the time they've been here for four years, you pose that same question to a group and students will offer suggestions tentatively, quietly, mm. hesitatingly, and then turn to one another and say, what do, you, what do you think about that? And wait and listen. They do a great job of listening to each other. The conversation by senior, in the, in the first year, conversation is brash and loud and, and exciting and, all, and it's, it's, it's a fun to be a part of. By one senior year, the conversation becomes very quiet and slow moving. And in fact, there's often quite a lot of silence. I mean, that was one of the adjustments I had to make. I'm a kind of a brash, loud, you know, Greek kind of guy here. And I caught here and you'd be sitting in the room and sometimes nobody would say something for 30 seconds, a minute as everybody was sort of processing. Really? Oh yeah. And it, I was terrified. It was like being at a Quaker meeting or something. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. And then I learned 
that's because every, everybody's really thinking about deeply about what they're going to say before they say it and listening to one another. So to me, that was a, you see that process of maturation in the students. So the older they become, the more learned they become, the less confident and the more humble they become. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It engenders a kind of intellectual humility. And, um, you know, I always say that, you know, our our job as seekers of truth is, is um, again, kind of almost dialectic or paradoxical. On the one hand, we have to begin with humility. You know, we are on this planet for a very short while. We understand only little tiny fragments of things in the world. We should hold on to truths very gingerly. So there's a sort of intellectual humility. And on the other side is this um, passion for the truth that you're going to seek it robustly and we're going to keep going and going and pushing and trying to get there. And those two things are in tension with each other, and they, but they complement each other. And, and I find them embodied, you know, in sort of our patron saint, Socrates, you know, somebody who never proposed to have the answers, but wouldn't stop asking questions. And in that way, um, it ended up being a martyr in the end. But um, yeah. Right. Well, Pana, what a magnificent uh, conversation and learning, I mean, on, on so many subjects and particularly at the end. I think that's the awesomeness of uh, St. John's because what you described, that wouldn't be most colleges or maybe any other college, right? That's a unique St. John's phenomenon. Absolutely. We may be the only school in the world who thinks we're successful if we send our students out in the world with more questions than answers. And you can physically see it over the four years because the the, the best students are the ones who are tentative, quiet, pensive at the end of their tenure at St. John's. Absolutely. Amazing. Respectful, humble, but still doggedly searching after, you know, that truth that's, that, that's out there. And totally rigorous and wrestle with text. I mean, I've seen it with the few people I've met from St. John's. I wish I knew more, but it's a, it's a remarkable institution. Extremely rigorous. I sometimes call our students the Navy SEALs of higher education. You know, they're, they're so rigorous and so disciplined and, and so focused on the thing that they're doing well. Beautiful. Well, Pano, thank you for such a, a magnificent conversation. And uh, I hope to meet you soon in, uh, in New York. I, I look forward to that. Thanks so much for having me here, Mark. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, what a confirmation about the true greatness that is uh, St. John's and the kinds of people it attracts and the kinds of ideas it teaches and the way it instructs in those ideas. And uh, it's just uh, such an honor to have uh, Pano Canellis, the president of St. John's Annapolis um, on today to discuss uh, this proverb, which is of such depth and such wisdom and such current instruction that I had never uh, looked at before. But when uh, Pano, when the president of St. John's says this is what he wanted to discuss. Uh, it was just, uh, I was all over it and uh, it was just uh, such a blessing to have him on and have him lead us through this uh, uh, terrific discussion of uh, Proverbs 27, one through eight. And uh, so thank you for listening and uh, next year in Graceland. I'm Mark Gerson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com. This podcast is part of the Joshua Network. You can find out more about the Joshua Network at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you for listening.